Hello and welcome to this episode of Superhero Ethics. Today, we're continuing our series on ethics of AI, going back to one of my absolute favorite childhood movies, War Games. It's a movie from 1982, but a lot of the topics it, it gets into, everything from machine learning and how computers learn, to the way that we use games to learn from things, to the ethical questions involved around machines or humans making decisions, and the idea of treating warfare as a game, all of it continues to be deeply relevant for today. And it's a movie about my absolute first crush, so it's just a fun movie to talk about in general. Uh, and I just said that with the uh, father of my wife, uh, but fair enough. Anyway, all that and more after commercial break, we have no control over. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Matthew Fox, your host. I've got a, a full team of people here today to talk about this movie. And so I'm going to ask each of you to introduce yourselves and start by just I, I'm the first question I'll ask you as you introduce yourself is what did you know about this movie before we got started on this? Uh, so, Paul, I'll start with you. Hi, I'm Paul Hoppy, a.k.a. Zen Madman. I had never seen this movie in its entirety until last night. Um, I was very familiar with the fun, you know, the premise of the film uh -huh. and the e even like probably the climax. Like, I think I probably watched the last 20 minutes of it five times on commercial television in the 80s. But I never actually saw the entirety of the movie um, as it came out in uh, 1983, I believe, when I was mm -hmm. like five. So I didn't see it in the theater. And like I watched a ton of movies as a kid, but like 40s movies and... <laughs> And like 60s Fair. movies, you know, um, so I, I, you know, I knew that it was about, um, you know, basically a kid who hacks into a government computer and like almost starts a nuclear war. And, uh, you know, that's that's pretty much what the movie's about. Spoilers, I guess. Definitely. Yeah. And today we're going to be talking mostly about the ethics of the AI. So it's not directly about the plot of the movie, but we will summarize the plot of the movie for those of you. Probably most of you who haven't seen it, but if you haven't, I definitely recommend giving it a watch. I still think it's a great movie that holds up pretty well. Uh, Rob, uh, Rob McKenzie, who has been on previous uh, episodes, particularly about the ethics of AI. Hi, uh, I'm Rob McKenzie. I so I'm the baby of this group. I was born in 1983, hmm. so this this movie predates me. Uh, but I watched it probably four fish times as a kid. I it, like all of these tech movies that actually like felt like hacking so like like not the net not hackers but you know sneakers and oh, war yeah. games like feel like actual technology right they they've right. got they they gloss things and but they but they try to actually get a lot of it right and those kinds of movies i loved as a kid and so mm. i i watched this a bunch prior to this and i rewatched it just on monday Nice. And or maybe Tuesday earlier this week, and so I was very excited to to get the chance to talk about War Games because I I adore this movie. Awesome, awesome, glad to hear that. Uh, and then our last guest, as mentioned, my father-in-law Dan McCreary. Uh, Dan, I, I I think of you basically as an AI guru. I think you <laughs> you have. I think I I think you're going to build the Matrix, is my understanding. But uh, I don't quite know what you, but. Uh, AI extraordinaire person, Dan McCreary, say, say hello and introduce yourself. Hello, everybody. Um, I uh, have some long memories, distant memories of seeing this when I was uh, uh, in my 20s. Hadn't seen it for a long, long time, and I went back and did some research on it recently. And uh, I was blown away about what a landmark movie this was. Yeah. Um, 
I found out that this was the first time that the word firewall was ever mentioned in the context of security and public things. Uh, that Reagan saw the movie and afterwards he asked his generals, uh, is this possible? And they did a bunch of research and they said, yeah, in fact, not only is this possible, but this could happen. <laughs> um, so this this was really an incredibly groundbreaking movie as far as the evolution of cyber security and cyber warfare and things like that. And uh, I think we only appreciate it now looking back. Uh, when I first saw it, I just thought it was a fun kids movie. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, now I really have a pr appreciation for um, the research that was done behind it and uh, the stories that were put together about other things that had happened at the time, uh, such as playing back a simulation of a war, which really did happen in data and production uh, security systems. So uh, uh, it's a, it's a really uh, fantastic movie to go back on and it brings up a lot of key themes that are just as relevant today as when the movie came out awesome awesome well and i i had to laugh a bit when you said that about reagan because i mean we're not going to talk about this part as much but as far as like the movie to me feels like a very clear deeply critical of the like kicking up of the cold war that reagan had done and bringing back the idea that nuclear war could be won so but he's also the person who thought uh uh, Born in the USA was a patriotic song, so there you go. Um, let me give a quick summary. Uh, go ahead. I, I think the most important thing about before the, do the summary is the context, right? Yeah. You have to remember that in 1983, the the wall uh, uh, in East Germany had not come down. We yep. were in the middle of the Cold War, mm -hmm. and uh, there was still a omnipresent fear of nuclear uh, uh, triggers going off. Uh, so before we tell it, I think it's context. Is Everybody has yeah. to understand that when this movie was done, uh, Cold War was the big major thing, and uh, people were living in fear, constant fear of possible nuclear war. So with that, Matthew, I should uh, let you take off and do the summary here. No, I think that's really essential because, it, as you said, and it wasn't even just that it was the like constant of the last 40 years of the Cold War. It was that we'd had detente in the 70s. and There'd been some sort of idea of like, OK, maybe it's becoming less likely. And then a big part of Reagan's platform had been like, we can win a nuclear war. We can just have to outspend the Soviets and like build uh, Star Wars, you know, the anti-missile systems and all this kind of stuff. So, yeah, that that's an essential part of this movie. So, and the plot of it is actually pretty simple. It's not a lot of twists and turns. It's mostly just about all the character and the and the computer and all that stuff that goes on. But the idea of it is that this kid in Seattle uh, is trying to just have some fun. He finds out about uh, a computer game factory uh, a make producer that you might be able to sign into. He signs into there what he thinks is a, a computer game developer. It turns out that he's actually managed to sign into the NORAD computer. Um, because what has happened is that the they did some missile tests. Humans refused to do the the humans who were supposed to turn the keys to launch the missiles in simulated tests. Basically, were like, I, I can't be yeah. responsible for twenty million deaths. I, I'm not going to do this. Good. I want to point out that's actually like the cold open of the movie. Yeah, is it, it is a unexplained test, right? Yeah. It looks like they're going to war at the very opening right. of this movie. And so you hear the movie War Games, you show up at this opening of the movie, and the first thing that happens is some people go down into into a bunker and then have to have to get the order to turn the keys. Yeah. 
I, I was watching it with a friend who said, like, immediately after that, that scene where you don't know what's happening, it cuts to something else, and the music is kind of happy and peppy, and, and they messaged me, this does not sound like music of a nuclear war, uh, because they fully believed it was happening. And that's, But so the point is that the, the military people then decide that they're going to install a computer called Whopper, War Operations Plan something. Um, I don't remember response, the last one. I think planning and response. Yeah. I think, yeah, exactly. Uh, that will take over the nuclear system to avoid the human error possibility. So our hero, our protagonist, accidentally signs into this thing, and it lists one of the games they can play is Global Thermonuclear War. So he thinks that sounds like a fun game to play, not realizing that he is he's getting the system to play the game because the system, the system thinks that nuclear war – it thinks – it hasn't been taught to think of war as war – it's basically been taught to that when it takes over, it should play a game. So it starts to actually simulate war. Lots of tensions escalate. Lots of you know uh, chase scenes and trying to the FBI trying to catch the kid and the kid turning into MacGyver to get away from the FBI. Uh, and he's got a partner named Jennifer who's with him for for all of this. Who's I appreciate her character a lot because she's. She, She's not just there to look pretty and have him explain things to her. She's actually much more level-headed and kind of keeps him balanced, and they make a nice duo. She has uh, actual ethical considerations. He has no ethics over the course of the movie, basically. Yeah, yeah. He he realizes that a bunch of people are going to uh, die, and that's bad. But he's not. He doesn't have the like. Well, the, he we we see him as like he's a hacker in that he can screw around at school, hack into the system, and change the grades. And she um, declines to have her grade changed at first, yeah. which because is, yeah. also context. The, I, I think today it's kind of hard to imagine this, but in the early '80s when this is written, unless you were a, a computer person, most of the characters in the movie don't understand computers at all. And there's a level of like, you watch them, and you're like, why don't they understand? You know, like someone said, why why would you lock the potential the the accused computer hacker in a room with a computer? Hmm. It's but yeah, I think it's accurate. The yeah. security guard would just not think that way. So anyway, they get to a situation where it seems like the machine is going to launch the missiles because it thinks it's playing the game. And in sort of the penultimate scene, the the climax scene that Paul mentioned, they get the computer to play tic tac toe against itself, and it got to because tic tac toe basically it's impossible to win. And it goes through and it goes through and it goes through and it learns, and then it starts playing like quick simulations of thermonuclear war. And learning that every time both sides get destroyed and there is no winner. And that's the kind of climax of the movie is that um, the, the, the computer learns that you can't win the war. Why should what we shouldn't play this game? And then a line that I would have loved to see Paul Hoppy's reaction when it, it says this, basically the last line of the movie is how about a nice game of chess? So that's, that's the movie. And I want to just, uh, the opening question actually is one Paul suggested that I want to ask you all and, uh, Rob, you especially, but I think everybody has some thoughts on this. Would you call this movie science fiction? And to what extent is or isn't it? I think it's it's science fiction in the sense that they take a, a, a sound premise and extrapolate it, but realistic everything in the movie is is very realistic, as as Dan mentioned. Right. Like it's it's science fiction in that it's the five minutes into the future, you know, what if we made a couple different choices, cautionary tale kind of science fiction, which, right. I mean, exists. Uh, the, there's a lot of classic science fiction novels that are set just a little ways out from where they are, mm -hmm. right? It, and so it's it's not different from any of those in 
kind just in terms of like how ambitious it is because most science fiction authors don't have access to norad for instance right <laughs> and so it, it is it's it's the the close range you know we should probably be aware of this immediate threat science fiction mm-hmm yeah, I would completely concur. I think uh, science fiction is intended to make us think about our future options and uh, potentially change our course and putting put in protective measures to make sure we don't have bad things happen to our little planet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. It's, it's funny because when Paul raised that question, my first thought was absolutely not because I, I think of science fiction as allegory. That most of the time it's it's going to create a new situation with new kinds of people in a situation that's very different from our own or at least somewhat different from our own as a commentary on the real world situation. And this one is literally about the real world situation, as it said. But I, I think you all make a good point that it, it definitely can be uh, pretty close to that. It, it definitely is can be seen as that because it is still it's saying let's play with the science a little bit and and use that to ask questions about our situation. Uh, right. Paul, what was your thoughts on it when you kind of raised the question? Yeah, my thought was that in 1983, this movie was clearly science fiction insofar as the science, like the technology was not yet there, right? But if you remade this movie shot for shot now, it wouldn't be science fiction because that technology more or less is here, right? I mean... Alternative history at that point, yeah, right? Yeah, you, right. you, you do have, you know, computers that know not to split the infinitive and say the only move is not to play, you know? Like, you do have computers that um, do... I mean, I, I'm sure there were these sorts of, you know, game theory type things, like running, right, simulations, but the level of computing power that exists now, I think, could my guess is would be closer to be able being able to do some of the things that like you know were happening in the movie but i'm not sure maybe that was sort of the level of if you had you know a supercomputer that took up a whole room like maybe you could do that exactly but i i i my feeling is that like it, the technology wasn't quite there yet but it was sort of like this is where it could go and it's like it did right i think mm -hmm. is my impression anyway Yeah, that makes sense. I, I just quickly, I just want to say <laughs> my reaction to, you know, a strange game. <laughs> the only winning move uh -huh. is not to play. How about a nice game of chess? It was like, oh, man, I wish I could have, like, played a really good computer back in 1983 when, like, a human could still beat a really good computer at chess. And now it's just hopeless. <laughs> right. You know, just no chance. I'm going to get crushed. Well, and I, I want to use that actually as a way to jump into... Um, talking about the AI in this movie, because I think one of the things that I think is fascinating is it's, well, actually, let me back up a bit before I get into that. Uh, so, so, Paul, I bring out chess and, and other games, you bring up uh, a, a part of the, the AI that I really want to talk about in terms of game theory and learning and things like that and the way a, com a computer can sort of solve games. But before that, let's just kind of talk about the basics of it, um, especially from Rob and Dan, but also uh, Paul. Um, we've talked before about kind of like AI and different aspects of it. What what's your take on the on this this movie's portrayal of AI and kind of how accurate it is and and sort of what 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 is it we're seeing in terms of those terms it's using, especially in terms of this idea of the the machine learning. Um, I think it's a 
very good portrayal. Uh, the idea is that uh, you have uh, training data, uh, you train those things, you build models, and then you execute those models, and uh, hopefully the training set is representative of the real world. Uh, so uh, yeah, it's it's right on. Uh, I don't see any problems with its uh, process. Um, I also see a pretty sophisticated idea of simulations of the of the world and mm. and doing things and uh uh we have a part of ai called reinforcement learning nowadays where we're effectively playing back certain games and seeing where we win and lose and changing our models based on that so uh, uh i think the terminology is much more consistent now mm -hmm. and the disciplines are consistent but there's nothing in this movie that uh, struck me as being incorrect about uh, right. AI and simulations and things. Yeah, it it isn't incorrect. I think that it's it's very science fictional in the sense that it's it's better than we had for technology at the time. Right. When you look at 1983, that you know the the hottest thing out there was the Cray One, maybe. Right, and that's got less power than than you know a Fitbit nowadays. Right. <laughs> right. Like. And so the, the power was not there. Like von Neumann, who invented games theory, I'm pretty sure that Peter Falcon is a, is a reference to him, except like with reversed ethics, basically. Okay. Hmm. Um, and so like the, 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 the big grandfather of game theory was also the big grandfather of computing. Right, von Neumann mm. made von Neumann, a lot of yeah. Early computers. yeah, von Neumann That's made right. a lot of the early computers. Basically, invented game theory from scratch, and the the computing power that they show is a bit more than what a system in 1983 would have. Uh, and the the actual principles that they used are like hand wave. Someday we'll figure out how simulations work, how we some of these game theory situations will work, which mm -hmm. they didn't have perfect knowledge of all that stuff back at the time. But nowadays right. it's it's not even state it's not even close to state of the art it's just the way that things have been for a while in any kind right. of ai technology setting would be my my read mm -hmm. well in, in terms of that so let's talk a little bit more because I, I i think i know those terms but i'm not sure everybody does and i certainly love a refresher so what exactly is meant by game theory uh so game theory is the study of basically action driven systems um the that's a bad that's a bad description game theory is the study of how people interact in environments where they're manipulating resources is mm -hmm. is a very very loose term of it. it you you have things like zero sum games where there's no new resources everybody's just exchanging things you have positive sum games where people can build resources by doing better and figuring out what the optimal set of moves are to produce the desired outcome mm -hmm. is the is the theory of of games of how to how to not just take your moves into account but your opponent's potential moves and it's a term that I've used a couple different times in our discussions is theory of mind. And game theory is a lot of building theory of mind. How do they think about the game so that you can figure out what their moves will be in the game? Mm -hmm. um, and game theory is a lot of building that in a controlled environment in a lot of cases. Right. Because most of the time it's applicable but not perfect for general outside environments in the world because the world's much messier than figuring out the optimal bluffing strategy in poker is 
Yeah. I think the classic uh, example of game theory is the pl- prisoner's dilemma. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. Where uh, four people are uh, accused of a, a, a crime and they're all put in separate rooms. And if none of them confess to the crime, uh, they all uh, you know, get a very minor uh, slap on the wrist. But if one of them uh, turns the other in, uh, then those other three people go to prison for a long time. And the question is, uh, do they have a strong agreement? Do they have a mental model of each other all not turning each other in? Uh, And so you can't if you don't have that theory of mind, you can't do that. What if scenario? Uh, And so that's a really classic example of that game theory. And I think. you know, it applies to nuclear war, too. I mean, uh, I'm going to press a button if I think that you're also going to press the button. Right. But if I know you're not going to press the button, maybe I won't press that button. So right. you have to have a mental model of what the other side is going to do to formulate your best action for the best outcomes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and von Neumann famously, right. actually, when they asked him, well, do you think the do you think we should launch a nuclear attack at the Soviets? He said, if you think you're going to launch it in an hour, why not launch it now? <laughs> right? He's like, mm-hmm. if, if, like, if you think that they will launch eventually, you should launch before them. So why not launch now? Right. And that, <laughs> Which that, is yeah. cold-blooded. <laughs> and that, that's like where you, you get to the sort of like, you know, game theoretical solution of any game mm-hmm. where, you know, right. I mean, mutually assured destruction is supposed to be, is kind of like a, an example, right? Where it's like, yes, if, absolutely. If you know that they're going to fire back at you, if you fire at them, then you can't fire. I mean, if your objective is to not get fired upon, right? Right. But on the other hand, if you know that they're they're going to fire on you eventually, but if you fire on them first, you'll preempt them from firing, then your optimal time to fire would be immediately, you know, not taking into account any like ethical considerations, right. but just like if it's like a win-lose kind of way you're looking mm-hmm. at it. And um, yeah, like in poker... We are constantly talking about game theory optimal and like Nash equilibrium and, you know, optimal bluffing frequencies. There are objectively optimal bluffing frequencies for like based on, you know, what hands you have in your range, what hands you can have, what hands they can have. And that doesn't mean it's going to be optimal against the way a human makes decisions, but it does mean that a human can't or anybody can't come up with some strategy that then keeps your strategy from being at least break even basically and so now we have these solvers that you can run and like it'll give you an answer it won't be a perfect answer because you have to give it constraints that like you know in in poker in like no limit hold'em you can choose a whole bunch of bet sizes right so like our computers now you have to give them a few bet sizes you're like well what if they only have these options what if they because you have to like kind of prune the game tree right and like Mm -hmm. if you're talking about a real world scenario it's like that's that's a big game tree (laughs) Right. So, right. so even when we're talking about poker, we're still building like these models that are not exactly um, representative of all of the options. But in, in a real world scenario, it's like it's going to be even more sort of reductive. Right. But I guess the idea right. is to try and build a simulation or a model that is as representative as, as you can get to to hopefully right. give you some some, you know, result that's usable. Yeah, and I'm really glad you brought the concept of the solver because as you and I were talking about this, I, I, my comment that I think you agreed with was like, if the solver is a computer program that tries to like you know figure out the game and figure out the optimal strategy, that's literally what the Whopper is. The Whopper is mm-hmm. a solver 
for thermonuclear war. Yeah. And they theoretically, they taught it a bunch of different games so that it would learn kind of strategy and logic, right? And then right. they teach it thermonuclear war. Right. And then they teach what? it tech-tac-toe, and it's like, oh, oh, let's back off on this thermonuclear war thing. Yeah. Well, so explain to me what... Um... Because I think that that's the concept I think where a lot of people get lost. Uh, not myself, certainly. I understand all this. Um, uh, but I'm doing this for you, listener. No, I don't quite get this either. So what is machine? What like? Because I, I think what I think about it is like you tell a computer every if then statement of it. Like you have to tell the computer at the end of the day all the different if then statements that it then calculates. Clearly, machine learning is going in a new direction. Like the computer is, like is it. It feels like it's kind of almost re rewriting its programming or something. But what what does that mean? This idea of machine learning and ha in terms of the movie, what exactly is happening inside that computer? Well, I'll, I'll jump in and try to make an explanation of this. That's my job, actually. I try to explain what machine learning is every day to executives and healthcare people. Um, and basically, what it is is that uh, there's two worlds of making decisions. Uh, one is what's called deterministic logic. And deterministic means that given a input, the output is completely determined by a set of logic gates, in a sense, mm -hmm. a set of true or false statements that are can be evaluated. And uh, if you put the same input in 10 times, you'll get the same output. Uh, and so it's very clear. It's very easy to understand. It's very easy to explain. Uh, machine learning, on the other hand, is idea of having a complex network of gates, uh, throwing in a bunch of random values into those gates uh, called the deep neural network, uh, and then uh, training it to try to come up with a good outcome and having up uh, what's called an error function that says, well, you're this wrong here, and you can go back and correct it by uh, uh, getting that feedback, uh, kind of this what's called back propagation. So you take the error, look at it, and say, gee, if we adjusted the values of these weights, we can get a layer, uh, better value. Uh, and it works really well in what are called continuous functions, not really big breaks. Um, and when you do that, uh, you're often um, uh, coming out with a, a system that's optimal, although sometimes the network will settle into things that are suboptimal, depending on your random values. Mm -hmm. So you're never really guaranteed to get the optimal answer, and uh, you can't actually explain what those weights really are doing. You can kind of say, well, they're taking data representation in one space and you're transforming them all into another weird space. Uh, and that space makes it easier to draw a line between the trues and the false. Mm -hmm. uh, but it is uh, basically, it's a, it's a random process. And because it's a random process, even though there's learning, uh, there's lots more risks to that, and there's actually no guarantees that you're going to reach optimal solutions. Got it. Is that a good good uh, summary? Yeah. W would you say it's more probabilistic as opposed to deterministic? Yes. Ab absolutely. That's so, a statistically uh, yeah. generated or probabilistic. The and the only thing you're going to generate is not an absolute. Uh, this is the right answer. It's a probability. I have a 99.9% probability uh, based on my prior training that this is the right answer. Right. And 
you know, it's uh, we're going to get into in a little bit the ethics of uh, the ethics of all that because I think it's one of the major questions is the like that, that when the computer sees it as a game, it doesn't understand the 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 ramifications. Um, and to me, I'm really also glad you brought that stuff to the theory of mind because, like I said, I'm not a computer person, but one thing I did put a lot of study into it was the kind of like philosophy of thinking of the the various militaries throughout the Cold mm -hmm. War and like we mentioned Reagan, but I, I think actually has a great way to talk about it. Reagan basically fundamentally changed the theory of mind of the Cold War because we had gotten – it sort of seemed like most international leaders had learned what the computer had learned, that that a thermonuclear war was pointless, and so we shouldn't – like we need to have our – we need to have our weapons because if we don't have our weapons, it won't be pointless. But as long as we have our weapons, like it can be a deterrent to each other. But but of course, the problem with that is that it assumes that everyone, as you talked about, that everyone is being a rational actor, that everyone's properly sharing right. that theory of mind. And, and I'm trying here to apply what I know to the to the theories you're talking about. But so it sounds like what what Reagan introduced was the irrational actor because and. Well, there's actually a lot of documents from that we've now gotten out of the Soviets from this point. They were all terrified because they thought they, they've very much had this kind of thinking of like no one's gonna ever try to have a nuclear war now. But they thought Reagan wanted to win, and it, and it kind of just changed the whole game from their perspective. Right. Um, he, I would argue that what Reagan did was he introduced a new, a new type of play to the game. Mm -hmm. So we, we talked about a prisoner's dilemma where you have two people that might betray or not betray each other is the standard prisoner's dilemma. And there's rules that you can follow in an iterated prisoner's dilemma. So you do the prisoner's dilemma over and over and you see whether or not you're going to betray a bunch or whether or not you're going to stay strong or whether you're going to both betray. And there's different rules that you can use for that. Right. And so you could have the person who always stays strong. Well, they they'll always lose to the uh, to a person that always betrays. But then there'll be like rules where you stay strong once, and if the other person betrays, you match them. You tit for tat, right? Mm. And so Reagan introduced a totally different paradigm of how how he was going to play the game, right? It, it tit for tat as a strategy is a huge improvement over always stay strong. And it's also a huge improvement over always betray if you have a whole lot of people playing with each other and each taking, like you play three or four rounds with each person. Um, and these different kinds of strategies, he basically introduced a whole new strategy for the Cold War, right? Mm -hmm. Of I, I want to escalate things, which nobody wanted to escalate. Right. Right. And he decided on an on an escalation strategy that was just just different. And you're right mm -hmm. that mod, trying to model Reagan's theory of mind, trying to figure out what his strategy was, was just wildly different from everything that happened in the Cold War prior to that point. Right. Wasn't there also kind of another dimension to the the like game, so to speak, of sort of the economic dimension of not yeah. escalating in order to theoretically win an actual nuclear war but escalating to basically force escalation on the other side in order to basically burn through resources and thus win economically essentially that's, right yeah that's the in retrospective view of like reagan pushed their economy until it collapsed but that's right? not like the actual motivation what well, it's hard to it's hard yeah. to anticipate. It's hard to say that was his actual plan because we had tried that, right? Mm -hmm. The space race was exactly the same. Right. We we spent four percent of our GDP on a moon launch, which mm -hmm. is outrageous, right? That's a, that's a humongous amount to pour into a pure science project. And then we did a similar thing again another generation later for Star Wars, which right. 
didn't yield any fruit, right? right. We don't right. have interceptors. Yeah, there is no. Like stars. we've we've never built them, right. and <laughs> so th- th- how did he? It like he could say we tried the same thing. Let's try it again. Right. And it happened to work, but uh, it's difficult to say that. It, like it, it's a it's a it's a just so story, right? Yeah, yeah. It, like yeah. It, it's it's a perfect explanation that makes everything work mm-hmm. out, but. It's hard to tell that it would have worked in advance, and it's hard to tell that it was even a sensible plan. Yeah, yeah. It, it, w- w- the question you asked is basically probably like the biggest question that like historians of the Cold War in the '80s have. You yeah, know, yeah. with like mm-hmm. a whole bunch of people who are writing books saying, you know, all the books that say like Reagan won the war definitely have that idea that he right. like this was his plan. A lot of the others are like, no, he was a brinksmanship person who got kind of lucky. Right, you know, right, and right. the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. Yeah, but. And um, the thing is, like, we have a sample size of one, right? Right. It's like, you don't really, it's really hard to draw conclusions from a sample size of one. You don't get to like, oh, let's run that simulation again. <laughs> Oops, right. blow up the planet. Like, And, and like, as much as I, I will happily dunk on Reagan until the cows come home, but like, it wasn't like it was 40 years of perfect game theory until then. Like, I think you'd also right. say like both Khrushchev and uh, Khrushchev and Kennedy is basically just like raise, raise back, raise back, raise, you know, yep. yeah. like you look at the Cuban Missile Crisis as basically just brinksmanship of who's going to quit first. Right. Right. Um, and who's going to blink. Yeah. Yeah. Who's, go- who's going to blink. And it turns out it was Gorbachev. And like, I mean, I assume there's a lot of complicated stuff because like, I don't think that Reagan's strategy could have worked differences. They didn't have to spend an unbelievably huge amount of money dealing with Chernobyl. Right. Mm, right. Right. And, and Afghanistan. And Afghanistan. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And yeah. and to me, that kind of shows how much any kind of model, like the challenges of like a general AI or something that can actually understand everything that's mm-hmm. going on in the world. It's like you can model one situation, but then that situation always is going to interact with some other situation that like are you modeling these independently or is there some way to actually have them interact with each other and that's why i personally imagine like it it might take a while longer than people seem to be concerned about in terms of like really coming up with effective models of like the world at at, like in its entirety right i don't know is that that fair Mm -hmm. okay Uh, that was that was that was to the. There's a question for Dan, I think. I just play. Uh, I just play with games all day. Like I play with AIs of the mm-hmm. uh, the more specific, yep. right? Like, and they're getting better every year, aren't they? Right. Amazingly rapidly getting better. Yeah, right. um, I just want to mention yeah. a couple chess engines, just in reference to to what Dan was saying, where there's like an engine Stockfish, the original mm-hmm. Stockfish, that like basically. My understanding is that they basically said, okay, this is what the pieces are worth. Here's the goal of the game. Okay, now go brute force, you know, your way through the game to figure out, you know, what move to make in any given position, right? And it would just go off and and calculate 32 moves deep. And it's like, okay, this is what we want to play. And then eventually um, something called AlphaZero came out from DeepMind, which learned... (laughs) I think it learned chess, go, and um, shogi, um, and like was just crush it. It destroyed stockfish, and but what it did was it was um, it was it was like self learning, right? It actually they just told it the yeah. rules of the game and then just ran it, 
for like a, I think it was like a day or something, they let it learn. Like, it's like a one day mm-hmm. old or something. I, I might have that wrong, but like not a long time. They haven't put it back online because it took a ton of resources, right? And right. it just instantly was the best player in the world. And the interesting thing about Alpha Zero, and later they made another one called Leela Chess Zero, which is like Alpha Zero, but it's run on like everyone's computers. Like you can donate your computing power to let Leela play more games and then improve. Um, the interesting thing is when you looked at their moves, they like have these kind of more human ideas. These like ideas where a human can look at it and kind of intuit, oh, I see the idea behind that. You know, I see what you're mm-hmm. doing there. Whereas with Stockfish, it's like there's things people refer to as like computer moves that it's like, I mean, it, yeah, if you see 32 moves into the future, this move makes sense. But there's no like really kind of intuitive way of think conceptualizing, ah, you're making, you know, you're locking the queen in the corner. So basically that piece is losing value or, you know, th- mm-hmm. this and that. And and Got there's it. actually so some micro, you know, micro strategies rather than a holistic look at it all. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. and like Leela then eventually plateaued, even though, you know, she kept right. like running on everybody's computers and and then. They took Stockfish and they added um, an NNUE and like now it's destroying everybody and it gains like 50 rating points every like few months or something insane. It's just <laughs> yep. like, I mean, it's going from, you know, where a human couldn't beat any computer to now a human, not any computer, but the best computer, like, right. and now no human can beat the computer, like given two pawns. And it's like, it just, it just keeps yep. the, right. the rate it- of learning is, is really spectacular. And you think of chess as being like, I want to wrap this up soon and move mm-hmm. the ethics, but just one last thing about this. And Paul, tell me if I'm wrong here, but you think of chess as kind of one of the easier games for a computer to model because the, the number of variables is very, is very limited. You know, it's um, like there are eight pieces and uh, 16 pieces on each side. That's never going to change. It's all the rules are always going to be the same. Something like poker, obviously, is a lot more variables, bet size. Um, but also just different player types and the like. My understanding, though, is that like for a while, weren't there like people were creating bots that could play online poker and and win pretty reliably? Oh, I mean, that's that's still a thing. And that's a, a real threat to poker like in the future, yeah. right, is real time assistance is people either using charts that are pre-generated by, you know, poker solvers or Mm -hmm. eventually having real time solvers. I mean, you know, if I want to run a complicated hand, it's going to take half an hour or an hour. If I want to run some preflop simulation, you you could run it for a month on a server. You know, you can rent people, rent servers and then run these sims for a month. And it's like, all right, here's your entire preflop strategy. But um, yeah, I mean, chess, though, like there's more possible positions, I think, than atoms in the universe or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like absolutely. 10 to the 120th or something, uh, mm. you know, massive. So I think it's a deceptively complex game. It looks simple, but like, you know, but then sense. you think about that and you're like, OK, but let's compare that to the whole world. And it's like, hmm, that, right. that's, a, yeah. that's a tough problem. <laughs> Well, so, so this is a good way for me to transition into the ethics side of it, but I'm really glad we did that because I think you have to really understand all these issues to talk about this. We're talking about how good these computers are. So does the central idea of just handing over control to the computers make sense? Like what, what do you, what's your thought when you watch this idea of someone saying <laughs> human error can cause problems in the military, let's let the computer decide? So I'll, I'll just jump in here because this is a, such a hot topic uh, for mm-hmm. me in my job every day. Um, so uh, before we started to release these machine learning models, um, 
people really didn't have a clear idea of the negative harm that they could do to small subsets of the population, right? Mm -hmm. That we applied them in general. Uh, we said on average, they're going to, you know, uh, uh, make better recommendations in clinical settings and things. But then what we started to see is that there was these edge cases, these uh, unusual combinations where the recommendations weren't very good. Right. And in fact, sometimes they were doing harm. And, and, and just to be clear, what you're, what you're talking about, for those who haven't heard you talk before, is you, you're designing the, compu the, the computer models that like when an insurance company looks at everything and says, OK, well, this we can cover and that we can cover. That, that's the kind of decision making you're talking about? Not quite. Uh, those are well called those called adjudication engines, which they say you get you will process the claim. It passes all the rules, or it doesn't process. Mm -hmm. Very very deterministic. If this else, then uh, I'm really talking about um, where we take a lot of information from the patient's chart and do diagnosis, uh, and then make clinical uh, care paths. Uh, you mm -hmm. should take this drug and this sequence uh, with these things and look for these side effects and things like that. Uh, and those are called clinical decision support systems. Uh, and to be honest, we don't have any clinical decisions today that use AI. And the reason is that we can't trust them. Right. We simply can't get them to explain why they would make certain decisions. Um, they are good at human in the loop. Hey, have you thought about this? Mm. Mm. But we mm -hmm. don't actually take the humans out of the loop when lives are at stake, to be blunt. Yeah. Um, uh, we do that if you have uh, diabetes and you have a uh, blood glucose uh, pump uh, and you're monitoring the blood glucose levels and we're going to put in a little bit of insulation, uh, insulin into your blood. But those aren't really uh, deep learning neural networks. They're deterministic rules and they've been tested over so many different types of patients and conditions and errors and stuff like that. So uh, we are at the verge today of really starting to understand the whole possibilities of data, putting them through these black boxes, which you can't explain what they're doing. And we're starting to get the sense that we have a, a much better chance of making good recommendations without bias, mm. uh, without putting uh, minorities and women at risk because we didn't test them and they weren't in our data set. Uh, we're getting to the stage where we can start to make good recommendations and, uh, and our physicians I think in uh, you know five, six, seven, eight years, we'll start to trust them. But right now, um, uh, it's very, very advisory. So the bottom line is, in the real world, humans are almost always in the loop for um, uh, a machine learning-based systems, right. uh, unless it's uh, very, very precisely tested uh, in uh, in things where software is a device, right? Software as a device right. is a term that the FDA uses mm -hmm. saying, this is a very, very well tested on all possible parameters and errors, uh, and it still is not going to kill your patient, right? That's, right? that's the key thing, or, or do harm. Um, so the the I think the key, though, is everybody has this fear, right? There, yep. there are over 50 bills in the United States pending right now that are putting legislation in place to make sure that when companies put together AI, that they actually test them yeah. uh, mm -hmm. adequately, right? Uh, so 
they're not trusting anybody. Uh, right. There's obviously a lot of liability to this, but every, there's a lot of fear, right? And and yeah. we saw this with a lot of uh, negatives on face recognition, right? Right. Uh, where uh, law enforcement was putting face recognition in, and it w- did really well on white males, right? Because <laughs> yep. mm-hmm. that's what they tested it on. But when you had people with dark skin, didn't pick up the right contrast, it made lots of misidentifications, and it caused people harm. Yeah, right. I, and at, at least two of the uh, cases of uh, uh, shooting of unarmed people it started because of a false identification based on that software. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not just one piece of software, but many, many, yeah. many companies yeah. were doing this. And and why? Because it's so lucrative, right? Uh, if you if you're running a security for uh, large buildings, uh, you want to be able to have cameras. You want to have them identify people, and uh, you want to be able to uh, uh, identify when they're people that you don't know in the building. Mm-hmm. Uh, all those things people pay good money for because security yeah. guards are expensive. Um, so there was a ton of money going into this, and then we started to see uh, a good technology get misused by a small percentage of the population. Uh, but then uh, the it started to become a very uh, strong negative. And then companies just decided, we do not want our brand associated with that. Amazon got out very early. A lot of other companies uh, just said, nope, we're not going to be in that business. Right. And, uh, and, and so as a result, because of lack of testing, because of lack of quality, uh, uh, a technology which could be uh, useful for some use cases uh, was used inappropriately, and that's one of the fears that a lot of people have too. Well, I think it's very. I think that's what the whole movie is about. Because, yeah, I I get why there's some concern. Like, I think the person who refuses to turn the key is a hero, not a problem yeah, right. at the start of the movie. But I do get the idea of like there are situations where people have to make hard decisions, and if they don't. You understand why it's difficult for them to do the thing they have to do, but if they don't do the thing, there could be massive problems. And so the idea of removing the human from that decision, I get why it is so tempting. And like, you know, a lot Mm -hmm. of science fiction, especially in the 60s and 70s, uh, in 50s, like uh, the one that most comes to mind for me is is the moon is a harsh mistress. Mm-hmm. But it's the whole one of the whole concepts of it is that so much of the problem with politics and economics is that humans cannot take their own biases out of decision making. So we'll just have a computer make all the decisions. And I, I think one of the reasons why I love this movie so much is it's a very understandable philosophy. But this movie is really showing what the danger of that is. And as you said, right. it's because the, you take a human out of the way. Now you have to completely trust the computer. And if the computer makes a mistake, which often is because you made a mistake in designing the computer. Yep. Garbage in, garbage out, as they say. Yeah. Yeah. And I would actually, like, from that perspective in War Games, my favorite character rewatching it, because I haven't watched it in a long time. And I always thought that the, that the general is kind of a, he's coded as the bad guy, right? Yeah. He's blustery. He's a jerk to everybody. He, like, directly insults the programmers repeatedly. Mm-hmm. But he's right. Like, the, it, like, every decision that he makes is perfectly sensible over the course of the whole movie and he's a jerk because he's allowed to be because he's a general right Right. and so he can tell people when they're being idiots and he's he's used to being able to tell his tech people look look i know you're i know you're smart but i i've got other considerations besides a new toy right and so he i i was like i i like him 
Yeah, I, I, I definitely like had it when I was younger. <laughs> I felt like he had a bit more of kind of like a redemption arc where not that he was really wrong in the beginning, but like he also wasn't really right. You know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, he didn't have he didn't have enough information. Right. Exactly. Right, right. And and so instead of like seeking more information, which would be the the rational thing to do, mm-hmm. he just like took his stance and then dug in. But I thought he was willing to to pivot when it when it became yeah. abundantly clear that that was the right. thing to do. So yeah, I, like in some ways, I think the, the the most important moral decision of the movie is where he basically says like the computers are telling us we're about to be attacked. Yep. All yeah. logic says we should fire our missiles now before we get hit. But I'm gonna and this is a very weird scene where he's like, hey guys. I'm possibly going to listen to you all get killed. Yeah. Just let's keep an open phone line. <laughs> yep. Don't run to the shelters that you should be running to. Yeah. Know? Just well, just well, tell us if you die. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. We'll we'll hear if you die. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. Just just give us a call back if you get blown up. If not, we'll just assume you're fine. Wait. No, that's not how that works. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's my mom and I used to make that joke all the time. I'll call you if I get blown up. You know. Um. Yeah. Back when we lived in New York, shortly after you know things were getting oh. blown up, but. Yep. Um. Dark humor was a big part of New York City in 2000, early 2000s. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, after 9-11, yeah. 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 Yep. Um, I, I would push back on just the statement, all logic was saying that they were attacking. Like, I think it was a logical decision mm-hmm. that, that led him to, no, I'm not going mm-hmm. to do that. I don't think that was an illogical, you know, human intuition, you know, kind of decision. I, I feel like that was actually the logic and that the... The, right. Almost the more human thing is to not listen to to all the facts when there's when there's really loud indications in your face of one thing, but then under the surface, it's like wait, but this is actually more important, even if it's not in my face. I, I right. thought that was actually a very rational decision that was hard to come to. You know, yeah, that's but even better. Way I do think agree. it was the most heroic act in the movie in a lot of ways. Yeah, you yeah. know, for sure, definitely. Well, and so I think a big part of what the movie is also about is. Um, because it, 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 I think the thing that, the, as I understand it, the thing that the computer gets wrong, and it's only because the computer's doing what it's been told to, is that it is treating thermonuclear war as a game. And like, yes. you know, when, when uh, I, as I've been learning poker, primarily through Paul, but also, you know, other books and studying and the like, you know, one thing that's drilled in is like, you want to play in a way that if you face the same situation again and again and again, you're going to win enough times and win enough money that you're going to overall over a thousand times come out ahead. And that that's a lot of the game theory is, you know, assuming, you, you know, that because the larger game of poker is more than just the one hand and mm-hmm. Paul's making faces and probably getting a lot of this wrong, but that's a basic idea. And it, my understanding is that like a big part of what the movie is about is that because of that, Joshua doesn't understand that losing a single game of global thermonuclear war is much more disastrous and also that like it not even losing but just that everyone's gonna lose it it doesn't understand the consequences that this is much more than a game and and is that is that correct that like kind of that because to me the way it would seem to me is that that's the primary flaw in how whopper is designed is it's designed to think of this as a game so it does not take into account the consequences of its actions well i i would also argue that falcon makes the case that they trained whopper to win Right, right. They didn't train Whopper to not lose. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Yeah, and that's the key. Because there's yeah. no winning that's not not losing, really. But right. humans can yeah. think there is. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so they, it, the, 
the the data set they sent it through and the simulations they sent it through they they said we want you to win they defined the parameters of what winning was and they didn't but they had it play against other opponents right and the the question i i, I question when they say early on it all it does is think about how to win a thermonuclear war all day every day i'm like so you're what building a humongous training set right now i don't like yeah i will say one thing that was confusing to me was like if it's learning this fast at the end What's it been doing for the last decade? Yeah, I, I think that's right. what Rob is asking is, <laughs> yeah. is training. Yep. Right. Yep. How, how has it ever won the game in the past? Right, right. And I yeah. think the thing that like they failed to teach it that the not, that the preferred outcome should be a draw. Like, and not just like a draw because everyone's annihilated, like a draw that nobody plays. Like, yeah. Like they gave it yeah. the conditions of like winning is having more casualties there, but not so many here. And it's like, that's in some, I mean, that's an intractable, intractable problem, right? Like there's, yeah. there's no like actually fighting a thermonuclear war and winning. That's not, that's not a thing. It's, yeah. it's always a loss, right? Like once it happens. And so it happening is a loss. And then really like, it should be studying diplomacy or something. <laughs> right. Know. Yeah. I mean, and I think two of the most, you both have said much more succinctly what I was trying to ask in that question of like the problem of teaching it, that this is a game where we, because to me, two of the most effective lines in the whole movie, the computer has this, like, it doesn't, I don't think any, any accurate toward an actual computer voice. I mean, I guess a computer voice is whatever you program it to be to a speaker, but it's, you know, uh, Matthew Broderick's character, uh, uh, David, asks, what is the primary goal of the whole system? Right. And it just says to win the game. Yeah. And then later he asks, is this a game or is it real? And the computer answers, what's the difference? Right. And yep. to me, those are both chilling. And like that's the heart of the movie right there, yeah. that it doesn't understand that. Yeah. And to me, I just want to say, like, that's human error. That's yeah, exactly. The, the way they yeah. designed it, what they told it, the goals to be. Like that's that's humans did that, right? And so right. it's like it's not the machine's fault. It's like if you program a self-driving car, which like personally in this instance, like yeah, I think we should just have self-driving cars now. Like right. they're better than humans. Humans are terrible at driving. Maybe maybe it's close. Maybe it's close. I think it, terrible drivers should have self-driving cars, and driving tests should be super hard. And if you can demonstrate you drive better than a self-driving car, you get to drive. But if you drive I, like most terrible drivers, you don't get to drive. That's well, what I. Think. And I think the self-driving car is the perfect example yeah. of what we're talking about of making the hard decision. Because and I I don't know the current state of this, but I know one of the questions that was coming up a lot with self-driving car is, you know, you're in a situation where you got four people right in front of you. You're either going to hit them and probably kill them. But the only way to avoid that is to make a very sharp left turn or right turn. Now you're going to slam into a wall or whatever. And, and so basically you have the proper choice is to risk your own life to protect the lives of these other people. I mean, mm -hmm. and, it, but yeah. well, that, that's, 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 that's the whole the point is that, yeah. that yeah. my understanding was that some, some of the models that were being used to, to train some self-driving cars mm -hmm the car would automatically crash your car to avoid hitting those other people. And like, so, to me, yeah. so that, 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 and like, maybe that is the right thing we want cars to do, no. but that's when, well, that, that's the whole point. Like, no, but the <laughs> thing is, okay. So I'm just going to object to that whole premise, which I've heard like a, a bunch of times, right? It's basically, it's the trolley problem, but you're on the other track, right? <laughs> 
the other yeah, track yeah. is a cliff instead of one person, right? There's there's five people on one side of the track and there's there's a cliff on the other side and it's a trolley, right? Like the the correct answer is you build a car that can see people far enough ahead that this is not a thing, right? But that's it's, and not, then that's the car that you put out there. But people are dumb and drunk and fall in front of the car at the last right. moment. No, but it, like yeah, but you slow down when there's somebody within a distance that that's a concern. That it, it that that works in a lot of situations. My problem with a lot of self-driving car situations is, like we've been saying, the world is big and messy and complicated. Right. right? We can simplify it way down, but people, it, it, it like, people are clueless enough that they step out in front of trains. Sure. Right. Mm -hmm. People come around come around building corners too fast. You have bicyclists that that come out in front of your car, and yeah. you have a very short amount of time to react. And sometimes you have to make. Uh, uh, two bad decisions, right? right? You have a bicyclist that darted out and you have two people on the sidewalk. You hit the bicyclist, you hit the two people. Sometimes, sometimes you have that choice, right? Uh, it, it just, it's just going to come up eventually that you have to make a, a, a judgment call about these two bad decisions. So and wh what do you do with it, right? I think you lower the speed limit. I mean, strategically agreed. You like. Know? Like it, and then like people don't want to do that. Terrible. But yeah. like there, there's like a game theoretically optimal speed for cars to go, basically. You know, like well, based it, on like, the we, possibilities. Yeah, right. like redesigning our cities, making lower speed limits, and if we had self-driving cars that actually like communicated with each other. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. Exactly. It, like everybody could make this this you know congestion so solution problem happen. Right. Mm -hmm. If you have perfect modeling of all the traffic yeah. and everything, but. You're not going to have that because you have companies that are going to fight, right? You right. have Tesla self-driving cars versus Ford self-driving cars. Well, What's going to happen? But you, you don't know? have to, right? I mean, that's like a legislative issue at the end of it. You know, in terms of like in our world, like you could right. set that up. But like if you're not doing that because companies have too much power, again, I'd say that's a human problem. The, right? the, but that's right. not even companies having too much power. I actually want Tesla and Ford to have different self-driving car models and different uh, different AIs behind them. Okay. Yeah. Because it, because mm -hmm. if you do that, then you have competition that drives your AIs to be better and be sure. different. Um, but can they but still talk to have, each other? Can there still maybe, be some requisite? You know, they could. You have to, they could. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah, I I, I, I think the there. fact that it's getting missed here is. Not even that the com the companies wouldn't want to do that, but in a world where like a third of our country won't take a vaccine that is clearly yeah. purely <laughs> the best for you, people are not going to be comfortable driving cars where they think all the cars are talking to each other because that means that they're all plotting and the liberals can figure like whatever the heck conspiracy right. theory is going to be. Yeah, well, but that doesn't make it not the best solution. That makes it a solution we can't enact, like all the other solutions that would be good solutions that we can't right. enact because people I mean, are yes, horrible. Yeah. And you know, game theory gets yeah. to socialism every single time. <laughs> you know, like, and yeah, well, well it's, it's something that I also mention here is uh, a a snarky the Copenhagen interpretation of ethics. Mm -hmm. um, mm. If you touch a problem, you're now responsible for it. Oh right, yeah, and yeah. So if it, it like. We we avoid that a bit in the roadways. Like it's kind of weird that we we actually will legislate like incremental improvements. It's one of the places where we definitely we're like seatbelts don't save every life, right? They they, they can't save every life, right. but they're right. way better than not having them. But hmm. uh, it, with self-driving cars, people think that they have to solve every potential problem, right? Yeah. And it, with AI, they think well it has to solve every problem, or we shouldn't let it out 
it right. shouldn't it shouldn't be 10 percent better it should be 100 percent better right and then like it might be 90 percent better and they'd still be like oh there's still it's causing 10 percent right of, you know it's right. like exactly like eliminate, oh. <laughs> yeah because there are some small number of people and i think we're, we're getting this better and better but like Seatbelts can be more dangerous for some people. Depend, you know, people who have like chest, like it, it's pretty rare and it's getting mm -hmm. much rarer. But like certainly, like they figured out that like seatbelts were very dangerous for young kids in some mm -hmm. situations. Right. And like so same with airbags and things like that. So it's getting better. But yeah, none of these things are a hundred percent. Yep. Um, I, I, I we don't have too much more time, so I want to shift to another kind of the. It's a computer thing, but it's also the ethical thing, which is let's talk about hacking. Um, because you all talked about how that what he does in this is actually sort of fairly realistic. And it's interesting to me that you were saying that because one of the things I noticed in the movie is he never types a line of code at, at all. Like he he figures out a password mostly through kind of human engineering and then like he knows how to use the modem and stuff like that. But at least what we see on screen is not what I think of as hacking. And I, I think I, that's because the media has given me a bad understanding of what hacking is. But I, I think he writes a script. I think he writes one script to war dial. The, the the whole phrase war dialing comes from this movie. He writes mm -hmm. the war dialing script and he uses it to check every phone to see whether or not it has a modem at the other end. Yeah, right. Um, but, like but you otherwise, see yeah. him writing the script, right? Because yeah, like, it's true. It's not. true. He could have gotten it from his two sure. two geeky friends, right? right, right. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Downloaded it off the uh, uh, old uh, uh, Bell Labs uh, yep. UUCP uh, <laughs> Unix to Unix copy uh, uh, networks at mm -hmm. the time. All dial up modems. Correct me if I'm wrong, if, if maybe the two of you know this more, but like actual hacking, I, my impression, my understanding from people who I've talked to about it is that it's less about writing code yourself necessarily. And often there will be programs that you acquire that you run and yeah. maybe you right. make modifications or something. But yeah, there's absolutely. Yeah, agreed. There's basically like making your own exploits, which is like deep magic nowadays, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like building your own zero day is very difficult and very expensive in a lot of cases okay um mm -hmm. but uh like taking and repurpose existing tools right uh i would bet that so the the best the single most sophisticated piece of software ever released for hacking was probably stuxnet do you agree dan uh yeah it's right up there i i yeah. know that uh there are literally hundreds of quote software packages for doing ransomware yeah and mm -hmm. anybody can you know you just have to set up the servers and do things to protect your uh privacy and you can launch and ransomware bots right so yeah. they are very low tech right they right. are right. simply doing social engineering please click this uh yeah, thing exactly. download this thing but you're right the there are other things that were that are usually so complicated they're designed by hundreds of engineers right. mm -hmm. in large government agencies and they exactly. and they get leaked out right yeah uh, israel has done very very complicated things to uh put uh eavesdropping things on cell phones yep. um but uh you know tens of millions of dollars went into those tools right, right. And, well, yeah, I, my example of Stuxnet was the U.S. government. Yes. And yeah. So, like, yeah. the, the U.S. government made Stuxnet. There was um, the – what was the name of the one that made Merck go down for, like, a month? Um, that was uh, that was uh, the mm -hmm. Russian government that was mm -hmm. orchestrated against Ukraine um, and then just happened to jump over to Merck systems. Israel's done a bunch. Uh, China had that incredible exploit where you could run an entire – it, where where they proved that PDFs were Turing complete, and like 
and they they did some absolutely incredible airdrop is the name of it and so yeah I have to say, you're ruining a lot of my dreams because <laughs> the movies of the 80s and 90s taught me that hackers were high school kids with piercings and tattoos or bad haircuts who knew how to talk to a computer more than they knew how to talk to a girl. And you're basically telling me that all the best hacking software has been written by governments. I mean, <laughs> that's true in the last 20 years. I'm horrified, right? but, but I'm not but, surprised. But you can point. still get high school kids yeah. download a ransomware package yep. and set up a ransomware thing on a couple servers, right? Yeah. You do but, not have to have a degree in computer science to do bad things and malicious things. Right. There's no question well, about it. And so that's a good question to ask, though, because I think one of – I was talking to a friend of mine about like has this movie aged well, and this is a person who does like quality assurance and stuff like that. And and her point was, it, it seems impossible to believe that computer security could have been that bad. It, that, it like, was though. That, yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. the yep. you know, the big example. So sneakers does this, mm -hmm. um, which is another incredibly good movie. If you have not watched so sneakers, good. it's it's a hundred times better than this at hacking. Actually, so good. they've okay. got they've got a deaf guy Whistler, and. Yeah. Uh, he's referenced on an actual an actual blind person, guy, right? Blind. A blind sorry, blind guy, not yeah. deaf, blind guy named Whistler, and he's referenced on an actual person who literally hacked the phone network because they it, what they did is they sent tones over the phone oh, yeah. to determine whether or not something was long distance or whatever. You had the mm -hmm. they they had both the audio channel that you spoke on and the data channel that was like sending who you're calling on mm -hmm. the same audio line. And so he could whistle because he had perfect pitch and he was uh, he was blind. Yeah. He could whistle the tones to uh, to like make long distance calls for free. It, yeah. uh, it wasn't that complicated. No, uh, time. Uh, I mean, there's a, that... uh, there yeah. a, a Steve Jobs uh, Wozniak episode where they had a guy named Captain Crunch and he yep. got social whistles in the Captain Crunch things and could hack into the phone systems. And that's how they. Mm -hmm. Uh, made some of their early uh, adventures into that stuff. Yeah, the the key thing about this is these are we're, we're all made the assumption that nobody's actually going to read the manuals of how yep. these things work. It's all uh, security by obscurity. Exactly. And now we know that uh, uh, with open source and all these systems, you can't do that. So you do yep. have to secure things with two factor authentication and right. and those things. Uh, so we have progressed quite a bit, but it is very uneven, right? Mm, and there yeah. are many companies that are set up by non-security professionals that leave gaping holes that don't yep. use two-factor. Uh, there are uh, companies that sell security cameras in your home and they put in a default password. Yep. And uh, with, within 20 minutes of these security cameras going online, there are Russian uh, and Chinese hackers that are watching everything in your house, right? Yep. So, so people are very sloppy and uh, then they learn the hard way that, uh, that there are, that you have to put into good security protocols. Yep. Well, Dan, I, I will have you know that you trained your daughters well, because when we first moved into this house, I, I like the idea that everything is on the computers and I can say, hey, G word, turn on the lights or whatever it is uh, and that thing. And, and one of the things that I thought was awesome was let's do that with our front door so that like when someone knocks and we're on the living room, I can look at my computer, look at my phone and just be like, oh, OK, that's when I recognize. Press what, could, and, what could possibly go wrong? Yeah. Well, and, and the point is, Mary, my spouse, Dan's daughter, <laughs> gave the exact look of horror that Rob was giving a moment ago <laughs> and was like, absolutely not. So that 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 is a lesson uh, that you passed down well. well. I, I, 
I would also contend that some people never learn. Um, so when you're the so Stuxnet, I'm going to go back to as an example. Most of Stuxnet's technology was in the deployment. It was trying to get the get the package to the hardware. That what what its goal was was to break industrial centrifuges that were used for separating out uranium, mm-hmm. and the the actual centrifuges had almost no security. Once you got to them, whatever. Industrial control machines are terrible for this. I work in industry, and uh, if you actually get past the the gatekeeper computer, you can do whatever, right? What well, and that, that's one of the things I like most about the movie is that even. Dr. Falcon, who is a computer expert, yes, he creates this backdoor password, but he makes the password the name of his son. Yes, which like exactly. If I'm going to social hack someone to figure out what kind of password they use, that's a pretty obvious one. Yes, you know, and same like the school. The schools, all their words were like pencil or class or you know, again, things that. At least uh, make I, it an anagram, right? I mean, too many secrets. Right. Come on. I, I do love the idea of a kid intentionally being sent to detention every now and then so that he can get access to just pulling out the thing. Right. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so let me ask you the uh, kind of one or two last questions as we start to wrap up, or at least one, maybe I won't get to the last one. But Rob, you mentioned at the beginning kind of that like he that that our, our he- protagonist character, one of the two protagonists, David, is really the protagonist, is the is amoral in a way yeah. that like where where Jennifer the kind of um the love interest but I think a, a fairly well developed one for the early 80s um which the bar is very low, bar's for low that. For <laughs> um, but it clearly and also five year old me just thought she was wonderful but that like she like she has she's the one who has a problem with doing it what what do you kind of think of the morality of the, the talk about what you meant about him being amoral and kind of the morality of hacking um, you know, I, I, I'm fairly certain what Paul's response is going to be, though I might be wrong there. <laughs> I was about already hacking, queuing it up in my mind. Go, but go when we talk about high, Rob, high school as imprisonment, but um, yeah, yeah, yeah Rob, right. you, you start. Like, what, what's kind of your take on David's character? So his, his character is he does not care if what he does hurts other people. And the entire first chunk of his story is he shows up late to class, uh, it doesn't bother with learning any of the material and like the the teacher is coded as a jerk and bad at teaching but that fundamentally doesn't matter to whether or not you are like it it, the the teacher can be super super good and you can be disruptive and he be disruptive in the same kinds of situations i'm pretty sure so he doesn't care whether or not he hurts other people he he cares about eventually making his grade work but he doesn't he isn't concerned whether or not breaking into the system like does any harm to anybody. Um, he doesn't believe in getting the grade that he earned, which agreed, school's crap. But <laughs> he 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 isn't willing to even contemplate the universe where showing up and being a jerk to everybody else is wrong. Mm-hmm. Right. And he kind of he kind of draws in as a model of like, hey, I'm so smart and I can get a benefit from being narcissistic here, right? right. He draws in Ali Sheedy's character very heavily on that. And then he doesn't, he, he doesn't let her consent to, to his breaking rules for her, right? Mm-hmm. He breaks rules, shows her the result. She says, don't do that. Then he says, okay, unbreaks the rule and then breaks the rule again before, yeah. as soon as she turns around because her decisions don't matter to him. Right. 
it's interesting because as you describe it, like I, I want to push back a little bit on the morality. I, I think there's a problem with him, but it comes from a different direction. But the first thing I hear is basically what this is telling me is that in this movie, in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, he's fundamentally playing the same character. Yeah, he is. Um, and, and, a, you could you could view them as a sequel. Like it's not any different, right? <laughs> I think he actually doesn't. He, I think in Ferris Bueller, he also hacks into a computer system to change a grade. So yeah, it might be yeah, more on, yeah. online than I thought. But also, it feels like. Um, to me, what I see is not necessarily because it's not necessarily like a moral choice as much as it is. This is a spoiled white kid from the suburbs. Like to Agreed. me, one of those telling lines of his uh, of what he says is when she's like, "We could go to jail," and he responds, "We're under 18. Yeah. You know, he he yeah. just, just not if you're under eighteen. Yeah, he's living yeah. in that. I have there are no consequences for my act. Like I don't think he mm -hmm. doesn't care about the consequences. Well, yeah. I guess there's another way of saying it. I think he just doesn't believe there will be because yeah, he's unaware of the consequences Agreed. and doesn't believe they exist. Right. Yeah. Because and, everything and, and, in his life has taught him that there aren't substantial consequences to most of his actions. Yeah. Right. And his apology is going to be, I'm sorry I got caught. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yep. I, I mean, I, I, you could see him just saying, sorry that I got caught here. Right. Yeah. <laughs> So I'll say that I only have a problem with one thing he did in the entire movie, and that was change her grade after she asked him not to. Yeah, like, that, that felt really... Yeah, yeah, she was like, no, change it back. He changed it back, and then he changed it again. It made it an A, which is so dumb. Like, if yes. you're gonna cheat and change your grades, don't well, make it something so obvious. But, Come but on. here's the deal. He did for himself. He changed his grade to a C. I know. Right? I know. But then he changed... He, he didn't care whether or not she got caught. Right, exactly. And mm. my wife was like, he was like, is he trying to get her caught? Yeah. <laughs> like, like, seriously, like thinking maybe that was a possibility. And maybe it was, but it, I don't think it was. But, but yeah, that was the only thing that like, I was like, mm, that, does, that doesn't feel good. <laughs> like, no, don't do mm -hmm. that. Like, but like yep. changing your, like summer school, I think is immoral. Uh, I don't really believe in morality, but like, I think, I think learning's the most important thing, basically, a person could do aside from like, you know, not killing each other and stuff like that. But like, I, just the school system, like they're you, they're basically forced to be in a place and treated mm -hmm. poorly. And like, I just, I, I don't think it's good. And so, like, if you want to do whatever you want to do to not be there, like, I'm fine with that. And like, if yeah. you want to break into some company's thing, you know. Fine, whatever. I don't really care. Like he almost caused a nuclear war because he's he's. I think he's like kind of like more of a dumbass. But like really, this was a fairly improbable scenario. I think it's fair to not assume that like that the oh, game you're playing is gonna. But yeah. no, he was warned. His his two tech friends when he went to them, oh, he yeah. said he showed this to them and they said this is not the game company. This is this is a federal system. Right, right, right. This is a government system. This is beyond top secret. That's true. Do not well, it, like. But to me, I, I, here I'm going to defend him some more because yeah, okay. I, I I'm more on the he's a dumbass thing, <laughs> in part because I, I I think I think his arc in the movie is that once he the minute he recognizes real consequences to his actions, yeah. he's now running all over the country, or at least in the northwest, to try and fix those things. And what because what, what I what I saw happen when he talks to his two friends is um. They're not saying, watch out, you could hack into the system and do damage. Right. They're saying, watch out, you could get caught. Right. And he doesn't. And that's care. where his teenage boy, you know, I'm invincible. I'm a teenage male in America, but also a, a white suburban kid, but also I'm under 18. I'll be fine. So, like, I, I think to me, I think it's not that he believes there will be consequences 
and dismisses them is that I think he just he thinks these two adults who are telling him there were consequences are wrong. Right. Yeah, I think that's fair. You know, I do think once he is warned that it's probably some government thing, like there should maybe be a thought that I mean, not that like it's not a game, but it's like maybe something will go wrong and that might yeah. cause some harm, you know, but uh you know, he's basically but, looking at a at Zork, right? I mean, it's just like a text screen that's just like, you know. Yeah, like, I, I think it's a fair assumption to think the government isn't dumb enough to let me launch missiles. Y y like, I mean, I, I don't know what the government's ever done that makes you think that's a fair assumption. <laughs> like, his assumption that this is kind of a game, right? Yeah. That he gets into the system and he thinks it's like a strategic modeling system. Right, right. Right. Yeah. And, like, sure. That, that makes sense that he'll get to the strategic modeling system. He knows as soon as he figures out that things are bad, that he could get in trouble yeah. and that they're going to do a trace on him and they're going to find him, right? right. And yeah. he knows that they're going to show up at his exact house and he's like, maybe they didn't get a trace. He's aware of all of the technical components that are sitting out in front of him and he just doesn't think through any of his actions because he doesn't think, like you're saying, consequences don't matter to him, right? To, to me, my favorite example of that is I threw out the number they find it in the trash. Like it doesn't occur to him right, that the right, FBI right. agent like, would look at his trash no, but the, can. But actually, that's but that smart. helped him. Yes, that yeah. helps him. They go, yes, we agree. The yeah. he like he's he also makes the it makes it clear that he's probably stealing long distance from the phone company, right? Right. right. Which like moral or not, like 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 stealing from Ma Bell isn't necessarily wrong in a like a. You know, they're a rent-seeking yeah. giant business sense. But at the same time, it shows that he just doesn't care whether or not he's stealing, right? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, quick checking question. We're getting toward the, the close time. Paul, do I have time to ask one more big question that might go a few more minutes yeah, extra? Or do we... Yeah, sure. Okay. So, so the... take it back. So the last ethical question I want to raise, and this is less about the computers, but it is about kind of the way the computer genius thinks. What do you think of Falcon? Like, because when we get introduced to him, they explain to him at first, he's just like, he wants to be a hermit, he wants to be left alone. And then they explain to him what's going to happen. And he's basically like, okay. And, and he kind of talks about how extinction is a natural part of life and that don't worry, the bees will take over and they'll do something. And, and, a, and, and when they push him a little more, it's why he's basically okay with the erasure of humanity. Uh, and he acknowledges there'll be horrible suffering for the people who survive. And, and he says kind of like, because it's all futile. You know, he he has become convinced that humanity will never learn. That, that like Because as he explains it, he he always wanted Joshua to teach everyone else that nuclear war is impossible. And that as he understands it, it didn't happen. And so what do you, like, I'm curious, what do you, like, I think obviously allowing nuclear war to obliterate the planet is morally wrong. I think we can kind of agree in that kind of a general sense, but like, I'm curious what you think of given what he's been through his position. I have a succinct reply, which is basically that he seems to think everything is futile and mm -hmm. they change his mind by getting him to think everything's not futile. And then they teach the computer that tic-tac-toe is futile and thus they win by teaching the computer, the meaning of futility. That's an yes. interesting insight. I like that. I like yeah. that. Well, I, and that's what he says. He literally says, I couldn't teach Joshua futility. Right. Yeah, yeah. 
which why it never occurred to him to have it play tic-tac-toe against itself i don't quite understand when you put that but... in as a game and <laughs> yeah exactly and and he said it for, and he had zero players programmed in i actually That's think true. that the that hit him in a nutshell is when they're sitting when uh, when Matthew Broderick's character is sitting there trying to figure it out, and they're all trying to figure out how to they like play three rounds of tic tac toe, and then he knows Falcon knows the system better than anybody. Yeah. He knows, and he could have said up front, "You can set it to zero players to have it play itself." Right. But he never mm-hmm. volunteers anything. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, like ever, he he doesn't feel that it, it, like I I assume that he's burnt out. He's tried volunteering information, and he's come to the conclusion that he can't that volunteering information, but telling people up front doesn't work. That people have to figure things out for him, uh, themselves, and he'll answer questions, but he'll never, he'll never tell people in advance that something. Yeah, he wants yeah. them to learn, right? And so they have to turn and ask him: Is there a way to make it play itself? And then he, he gives the very simple: Well, you just enter zero players yeah. answer, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, that, it's a really good point because one thing I always noticed, and I never quite connected it though, is that he has this very kind of like the happy teacher as the student figures something out smile. Yeah. As yeah. Matthew Broderick's going yeah, exactly. through all that, yeah. like you, 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 you asked. Good. Yeah, I've been See, waiting. <laughs> learning is very important. It's critical. It shouldn't happen in school. It should happen in underground nuclear bunkers. Right. Where you have three minutes. In, yeah. Where you have three minutes like... until the extinction of humankind. <laughs> That's where the best learning takes place. Yeah, I think it's very important that you learn to ask experts questions. Yes. <laughs> you know. Yes. We're, there's a big movement in That's schools right now to try to get away from like tests and like the whole exam culture. And one of the key ideas is that it's very hard to learn under extreme pressure. And I'm worried we're going to take the wrong lesson from this movie in that regard. <laughs> All right. Well, anyone else? Uh, Dan, do you have any kind of thoughts on Falcon and, and where he's coming from there? No, I, I agree. The uh, the interesting thing about that is the silent teacher, the Socratic method mm-hmm. uh, thing. And I think it's a, he's a great character. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I I actually didn't even think about a lot of the things that Paul has thought through here. So yep. uh, that's good an analysis. So here here's a further question then. Did he honestly believe every like was he honestly completely ready to let the world go? Or do you think he actually did that as a like – let me t- let me see if I can. This kid is obviously brilliant. He found me. He found my computer. Let me give him one more push. At the at the very very end of like, put it in no, zero. No, when they no, first like when, met him. When they're on, when, the- when they're on the island and he says oh. like, I won't go. I won't. I because I think it's very clear that he could go to NORAD and fix this. But yeah. uh especially because at that point they don't think the computer is going to launch its own missiles. Right. It's just that everyone thinks the Russians are attacking. Yeah. Right. How did he whistle up a helicopter in a jeep? Yeah, that that yeah. Uh, oh, I think he, I, they, they made a, they made a joke about why would you live on an island if you don't have a boat? I think right. the answer is because he has a helicopter. Well, he had a pilot. He did, he wasn't flying it. Yeah, yeah he was a passenger. <laughs> oh, oh, so your, is your point maybe that he had already been planning to like take I, care? Of- my, my point is that he had keep he had minders and they knew him very well, and he walked up to his one of his minders and he's like. I do need to go to NORAD very urgently. Okay. <laughs> right? They gotta, and they were like, oh, soon. finally. Finally. Right. <laughs> okay. But that's my – so do you think that he had already decided, like, I, I want – I should go to NORAD, but I want these kids to to figure it out? Or I think that pr- prior to that, he had no idea that anything was happening until the kids showed up, right? Oh, right. No, but once try- they showed up, was his first reaction, oh, I should go, but yeah. let me teach these kids a lesson real quick? Or had he yeah. completely given up on life? 
to, to put it in the game theory, yeah. was, was his statement of it's okay if nuclear war happens a bluff? Or was it uh, what he actually I, thought was okay? I think he might have thought it was okay. And then when they went away and he had some time to think, he probably changed his mind. Yeah. Because sometimes, yeah. I think he thought it was inevitable. I think he spent yeah. his life trying to solve, you know, use game theory and computing to try and solve the nuclear issue, right, mm -hmm. in some manner or another. And he felt he had failed and his family died and he was like, I'm done with this. I'm just going to go somewhere and wait to get blown up because that's going to happen sooner or later. And then yep, these yeah. kids show up and they're like, blah, 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 blah. And they're in his ear and he's like, it's it's hopeless. It's futile. Yeah. Go away. And then he's like, all right, maybe it's not. OK, let's let's at least like, yeah. save the world for a little like, while. Yeah, everything. Everything is consistent with him thinking nobody else has seemed to care ever. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then finally, it like he's like, you know, they did care. Yeah. Yeah. Fine. Yeah. I think, I'll do it for these two. Right. I'll I, do it for these I, two kids. I like that a lot more than he's bluffing. Because one thing I, yeah. I always notice as I watch this movie is I have never thought of him as a villain. I've always thought of him as, yeah, kind of like a sad person who's lost hope and they, the characters need to give him hope again. But then every time I watch it, I listen to him and like he is saying that he has the power to stop a global thermonuclear war and he's choosing not to. Like, well, that is yeah. normally the choice of a villain. And my only point is the fact that we can all have like understanding for why he does that and not just immediately vilify him. To me, I think that's a great part of the movie that they kind of yeah. set that up in a way that you understand where he's coming from. I, yeah. I think he doesn't think he has the power to stop it. I think he has the power to he believes he has the power to delay it. Yeah. Only so yeah okay. long. And like, thus, what's the point? You know? Yeah, exactly. I think that's where he's coming from. Which, you know, which ties I, back to the yeah. game theory stuff we're talking about of if you're going to have a nuclear war eventually, why not do it why right now? Why not do it now? <laughs> well, Rip that, the Band-Aid off? <laughs> it, well, that, that was also Von Neumann's point because Von Neumann worked on on the Manhattan Project, right? Right. <laughs> and, yeah. he, and he – we had bombs before everybody else. And he said, look, we have the – they have many fewer bombs. Why don't we just launch an attack now? Right. right? Just take over the entire world yeah. and then no one else will have bombs ever. Well, it, they it, they didn't have fusion bombs yet. He worked in the fusion bomb project too, and he was like, "We have superiority now. Is the time to launch? If we can, if we're ever going to launch, we need to launch now." And then we didn't, and right. then things got yeah. cold warish. <laughs> See, and now we got mad. Yeah, now yeah. I want to both study his game theory and find out if like people in the military in the late seventies and early eighties were reading that because that was a big part of their philosophy was. They, they, Nuclear yeah. war with the Russians is in inevitable because for a while America had a no first use policy, and yeah. that was one of the things that Reagan wanted to change was to say like no, like we need to be ready to use nuclear weapons first if we if 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 we think it's inevitable right. and if yeah yeah that was that's the the other thing game theoretically is if you foreclose on options and then let your opponent know that you're foreclosing on certain mm -hmm. options like I, like if you let your opponent know that you're never going to bet on a hand in poker that has is you know an offsuit non-pair right that that is giving them information right like it's probably true but you need to be able to bluff that sometimes and so reagan's proposal of like what we need to not take options off the table is not wrong, but it's also scary. Yeah, right. <laughs> when your option is kill everyone as your opening right. play, right. like <laughs> well, right, because, is... because game theory tells you the best way to win is to not take options off the table. Yes, but that well, only works always. if nuclear war is winnable. 
Just, yeah. just for the record, not always. Sometimes a game theoretical solution will yeah. um, simplify to always take this one action 100% of the yeah. time. Or yes. only take these two actions as opposed to these three actions. But, right. But it, it does say don't, you know, eliminate the actions until you've basically solved the scenario, right. at which point you can say, right. okay, this action is dominated. We don't do that at like, all. Yes, exactly. Like, under optimal game theory, are you ever checking aces preflop? You mean like if you're the big blind and... Are you ever limping? limping uh, are you ever basically calling it, not raising? Maybe aces? yes. Actually, yes. You you okay. are. And this, is, this <laughs> no. This is yeah. this ties into like the thing that I wanted to close with. Sure. So if I can it. pivot yeah. to this quickly, um, you know, I to me like machine learning and AI is obviously a, a part of it is about humans teaching computers to think in some way or another, right? But. Like what I've gained out of it is learning how to think as a human from seeing what the computers come up with, right? And so mm -hmm. I think that's one of the things that we can, you know, at the end of the movie, you would hope that the humans learned from Joshua just after Joshua learned from them, from them right. teaching it how to teach itself, then yeah. you know, he's teaching them, yeah, don't play. Now, of course, the right. humans don't learn this, probably, right? That's not well, everybody comes across to that but but if the u.s learns it it doesn't mean that russia learns it right, right? exactly everybody the Soviet has Union to learn. the same lesson right yeah. that's the thing right. that's the thing you need to like release a proof or something somewhere <laughs> but like well, well it, this, this is the open source thing again right <laughs> yeah and i think exactly. it actually ties into something else in the movie though because you all were saying at the beginning that part of the idea of game theory is that theory of mind where all those four prisoners have to trust each other Mm -hmm. I think one of the 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 movie implies this. It never really goes into it, but clearly part of the point is they can't just call Moscow and say, "By the way, are you about to attack us?" Right? Because they, Moscow could have told, like, right? They, they said they're not, but they don't yeah, believe them. They right? did. They yeah. they contacted Moscow and they said over and over, "Well, they say they're not launching an attack. Right? We're contacting yeah. them. Their embassy yeah. saying that nothing's that nothing's going on. There's no planes in the air. Right? But right? if they were attacking us, would they say they're attacking? They'd us? They'd say the no. same thing. Yeah. Right? So exactly. right. There's, 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 so you can't trust the poisons yeah. in that glass. Right? Exactly. <laughs> Therefore, um, so just your aces example is, I think, mm -hmm. a really interesting one because okay, there's you know, without thinking about the game strategically, you might think, oh yeah, maybe I should limp aces in some spots, right? Um, but then as humans thought about it in a very human way and sometimes trying to use some math, but in a fairly crude way, we pretty much came around to like, yeah, you, you, you shouldn't do that. Like, you know, you should raise them. You should always be raising blah, blah, blah. And then we built solvers and ran the solves and the solves were like, yeah, you can, you can limp aces sometimes, you know, if the, st <laughs> if the stacks are small enough and, you know, this is a situation you actually want to limp them and then they're going to raise and then you can re-raise like you, you actually do in some scenarios want to limp re-raise, which was this human idea that then humans said, no, no, that can't be right. But then we built computers that say like, no, no, that's, that's actually, that's good. You should do that. A lot of times you shouldn't, but sometimes you can. Right. But then people also build models that say you're not allowed to limp. And then, well, then the computer won't tell you to limp. Because you told it it can, mm. right? And that's that's yep. not that's because the constraints that we've put on the solver, you know, we could mm. build the solver differently and give it different options, and it would say, yeah, that's okay. But other times we'll be like, yeah, no, that's no, that's definitely not a thing, you know. Yep. So yeah, that makes sense. Um, but uh, but there are plenty of spots where it is, you know, you don't you don't want to be doing. Right. No, I think it's a good last thought, and so I'll I'll open to to you also. Any other last thoughts you want to close with? 
last questions you want to pose? I'm good here. Um, I just want to touch once again on the opening things up. Like mm. a, a lot of these situations, like the whole movie is based on nobody knowing what other people are doing on the the whole system being closed source. You can't check if they made bad assumptions. Right. And a lot of these problems become much more trivial when there's a lot of eyes on them. Mm, and yeah. so if you if you think there might be an ethical consideration, well, maybe get some other people to look at it that don't have different brains than you. Right. Um, yeah. That's well, a good way to look at it. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of an interesting actually parallel to what Paul was saying, because Paul, what you're kind of saying is like the thought was we should trust the solvers, not humans. Um, and there was kind of this back and forth. And like in this movie, the whole point is that we can't trust humans, so we should trust the computer instead. And right. and that that's a, a big part of the yep. problem. Yeah, because you know? the, the the humans made the computer, right? So there's still right, yeah. like there's there's human bias in humans, and there's human bias in computers until somehow, yep. you know, maybe you you give it enough free reign, then it's like okay. Mm -hmm. But even that maybe, yeah, yeah. I, and I would just kind of say as my own last closing thing, I I I'm so glad we could have this discussion. I think the the ethics and AI topics are so important. The Cold War topics are so important, but also I uh, like. I love this movie since I was five years old, so I wanted to know that it held up. I mean, I do think that especially if you didn't grow up with some memory of the time before computers were completely ubiquitous, it might feel like this movie ages very badly, you know, because it's just not it, – it's hard to imagine this kind of thing. Um, but but I do also think that – or and, and for anybody, I think I think it's, it's perfectly legitimate for anyone to like look at this movie and be like, it, it just seems too dated. But to me, dated or not – when I look to science fiction, the fundamental question that I often think of was, especially with something like a movie, like a more accessible uh, thing than a book. It's like books are accessible, but you know what I mean. It's yeah. two hours instead of a long book. Yep. Is that I think that it needs – that the best it can be is when the ethical questions are raised by the science and the people who know the science can really enjoy it and go deep into the science – but the people who don't understand the science in the slightest can still understand it enough to perfectly understand the questions the movie is raising. And, and to me, it sounds like that's what this movie does is it that because like yeah. none yeah. of this AI stuff I understood, especially when I was younger and watched it. But I still got exactly what the movie was trying to tell me about decision making and war and, and games and what's, what, when things are not a game and, and all that kind of stuff. Yep. I, I I think the movie does have many attributes that are gonna uh, be useful for people to watch it uh, dozens and uh, years from now. I think there's a lot mm -hmm. of consistent uh, things, and I think it's gonna go down as a a movie in in history that yeah. will have broken a lot of ground and mm -hmm. uh, shed new lights on these problems. Well, and that's Dan. I actually love what you said that how this movie was the first in a couple of things. Have you heard people in like that? You obviously not only work in it, but like you surround yourself and you you do a lot of thinking around computer science and computer science ethics. Like, is this a movie that ever gets referenced in those discussions or in terms of like these questions? Uh, I I wouldn't say uh, it does. Um, mm -hmm. I think there's a a general um, tendency to to try to put a lid on the fear that people have about machine learning uh, because they don't understand it. Uh, it. I think there is a problem in our society when there are things that are that only a small percentage of the world population understands. You know, uh, mm -hmm. I, I one of my favorite things is quantum computing. Uh, everybody says, oh, this quantum computing thing is going to be amazing. And yet it could be 100 years away from 
being uh, anywhere near uh, economically feasible, but it's a great way for physicists to get funding, right? right, it's, right. A great, it's a cash cow for them. Uh, blockchain, another good example of a system that, uh, as far as does it lower the cost of transactions? Absolutely not. Is it a uh, a uh, a way for people to get attracted to people that are doing unethical things? Yes, a lot of things in the cryptocurrency market have just been a, a an attractant for. Uh, uh, people that don't that don't really understand what it is and are trying to position it in ways and and to sell misinformation uh, about the value of these technologies. Uh, I think there is a, a general optimism that machine learning is going to make our world a better place, unlike blockchain and quantum computing and and cryptocurrencies, uh, because it is helping us make better recommendations. And I think anybody who starts to see uh, the safety aspects of self-driving cars and uh, uh, braking systems that will automatically brake for you if you stop paying attention to what's in front of you, uh, we can save, uh, you know, 30, 40, 50,000 lives a year if we can make these systems work, not under all conditions, not under rain, not in construction, not in the dark, but mm -hmm. under ideal uh, situations, uh, I think we can save lives. So I think uh, movies like this that talk about uh, uh, intelligence and simulations uh, and trust of the government, right? Uh, yep. we, we've lost uh, millions of lives in the United States because we didn't trust the people in authority. Mm -hmm. And uh, those are all important lessons to learn. And I think we still have opportunities to learn about what other countries did uh, and why they saved so many lives because they did trust their uh, governments. Uh, and so there's all, all these things that uh, remember. The other thing to remember is this is this happened not long after the Vietnam War, right, yeah. where there was a huge lack of trust of our government. Right. And so we put that into context, too. Uh, mm -hmm. And then we're, we're still trying to undo the fact that many people in the United States don't trust uh, our government systems and our state systems because of the history there. Well, and we're yeah. very careful that we don't start a whole other podcast as we did last night. <laughs> yeah. because who would do as, such a thing? I know that in the context of COVID, I completely agree with those statements. But if you ask me on a general level, would I say that the problem is that people don't trust governments enough and that people need to trust authority more and trust governments more? I would say that, as you mentioned, Vietnam is a classic example of why that's absolutely not true. Well, so, but yeah, so... But just want to give that bit of yeah. pushback. But I'm now also going to be silent for a second because I think there's one person who may want to push back on something else you said. I'm not sure, but I will let that person decide. Which about? <laughs> I wasn't sure if you. I, I, we don't want to start another podcast, yeah. but I wasn't sure if you wanted to. I wanted to give you a chance to say a word about cryptocurrency if you wanted to. Oh no, it's all right. It's all right. Um, I, I I would just say like in terms of trust of government, like. It would be better if, you know, there were more earned trust of government, you know, and yeah. the, the problem is like, you know, yeah, I mean, Vietnam and Watergate and, you know, any number of things. I mean, you know, all the governments that were overthrown by the CIA, like, you know, yep. it's and, and yep. honestly, like all the things that the FDA and CDC had done wrong, you know, it's mm -hmm. like yep. there were so many missteps that really... Mm -hmm. They wouldn't have gotten the trust they deserved if they'd done everything right. But then when you also do some things wrong on top of that and undermine right. the trust on your own, it's like you just end up like this sort of disaster yeah. that we've ended it, up it, in. Yeah. And, and, and also the fact of like 
I want people to have some healthy distrust of the government based yes. on actual things. Right. right Distrusting yeah. the government because you're thinking they're running a criminal conspiracy out of a pizza place. Maybe not so much. Yeah, maybe not so much <laughs> with that one. Yeah. Uh, well, healthy, I think skepticism more than distrust, right? Yeah. Sort of Sc like, skepticism. I think and, that's, a, that's there a we go. And, and I, I could just argue it back to openness. Like yes. if they're open yeah, with transparency, right. like, yeah. yeah. Yep. Transparency yeah. is the best disinfectant, right? Yep. 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 Definitely. Sunlight right, well, is the I, best, right? UV rays? No. Yes, that's the, oh, that's no. the phrase. Sunlight, sunlight, yeah. is, the sunlight is the best. No, no. no I, I, was I making a, Yeah, okay. People as pale as me, no. Yeah, you just anyway, inject the right. sunlight? No, that's not. <laughs> all right. That's not, okay. Yes, all right. We're, we're going to wrap up, though, yeah. now. Um, we're really bad at wrapping up. But thank you. <laughs> thank you all so much for being a part of this. Um, for people who want to hear more of what you're all doing, uh, Dan, you go first. If people can find kind of your writings and thoughts, where would they look? Well, first of all, Matthew, thank you for picking this movie. This was a great movie. Uh, and I, I really appreciate the uh, subtleties after listening to the team here uh, about this thing. Um, and uh, the one uh, big uh, pitch I'm going to do is where if anybody's in the Twin Cities, we're going to be doing this uh, IOT hackathon coming up. Uh, so anybody who wants to learn how to program uh, little devices around your house uh, that you can uh, talk into and make your Christmas lights change, uh, we're having some great teams uh, put together. So uh, just go to LinkedIn, look for Dan McCurry and search for IOT Hack Day. Uh, that's, that's some fun activities coming up in the next couple months. Yeah, de definitely check that out. Uh, Dan and I worked together for a while on like teaching computers, and I know Dan and the folks he works with are fantastic teachers. Uh, I'm a, now I'm a little concerned. I'm going to watch the news after the hackathon just to make sure that DEFCON levels haven't changed. <laughs> but I think we're probably safe. But yeah, you say hackathon, you get a little worried. Uh, it's Rob, most, mostly hacking Christmas tree lights. I think it's not too dangerous. So. Okay, but not front doors, right? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, Rob, what are you up to? Uh, I'm kind of more and more social media hermit. I was recently on an episode of Good Luck High Five, another podcast that I tend to guest on a bunch, and I do a lot of magic-related things. But otherwise, I'm not like super public out there doing things in the in the public sphere. Yeah, I will say to the rather specialized part of our audience that are judges who are coming to the Minnesota uh, NRG conference at the end of September, mm -hmm. uh, Rob will be giving a presentation at part of the judge conference I'm running. That's well, probably true. four out of the, the thousand or so who are going to listen to this. But, yeah. you know, for right. those four, you still got to – actually, applications will have closed by the time this airs. So Fantastic. kick rocks. Sorry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Paul, what, about, what are you up to? Um, yeah, I'm Zen Madman on all the social medias that I – ever go to um i actually stream on uh twitch uh, here on uh, zen madman like doing a bunch of poker solver study and stuff like that and sometimes playing around with chess engines to see how badly i played a game of chess and <laughs> so that feels vaguely related and um yeah i just want to say this was this was really fun thanks uh, i was really happy to to be on and get to talk to all of you about about this um you know i <laughs> Like artificial intelligence in some degree is something that I interact with a lot, right? Like on a, mm -hmm. on a like hundreds to thousands of hours with with these um, programs, uh, but it's it's something that I, I have like only passing understanding of. So it's really nice to you know, be able to hear from some experts on it. And um, I I I do I do want to say just like one thing about the sort of like the dangers of AI and how this has become this like sort of you know, bugaboo or whatever, like people, this, this big fear. And it's not that there's 
no warrant of any of that. But I think it's really interesting how this movie pairs artificial intelligence, which I think a lot of people have their concerns mm-hmm. about, with like nuclear weapons, which I, I think are the single stupidest invention humans have ever created. You know, like right. the only thing they could do is kill people. And, you know, artificial intelligence, obviously, like maybe there's some things that can go wrong, but like a lot of that's human problems. But like, you know, it actually has the power to, you know, do stuff that's, you know, yeah. not killing people. So I, I just thought it was kind of an interesting pairing in the in the movie. Yeah. And I think I think it's great because the last thing I, I wanted to close with was pointing out that, like, it's only a couple of years late. The, the whole point of this movie is the danger of letting a computer decide when to launch nuclear weapons. It's only a couple of years later that we get another movie where the fundamental fear is about a computer deciding to launch nuclear weapons, Terminator. Yep. Like, oh, that's exactly right. what that movie is about, too, is AI yeah. plus nuclear weapons. So well, I, I, I hope you all want to. Quote, just say that Buffy bot so said bad. very interesting. Thanks, guys. Uh, pretty kitty, Rob. So I, th- I thought your kitty should get oh, yeah, on great. the podcast as <laughs> very, we were very here cute. during, very during so the stream. One more good reason is to tune into these streams because uh, kittens make very bad radio, but they make great visual. So exactly. if you want to mm-hmm. see our various pets, uh, watch us every Wednesday night. We're going to be doing it at 730 Central. Figure out the rest of the times, you people in all the rest of the world. Um, Sorry, I'm just tired. Uh, 5.30 Pacific. To, I got to talk to my 5.30 Pacific, audience. 8.30 Mountain, uh, 8.30 Eastern, and 6.30 Mountain. And the rest of the world, there's websites that'll tell you. Uh, but then, uh, so to everyone else, thank you so much. Yeah, you, you really were the perfect collection of guests. Like, I hadn't even really thought about how, like, this movie being, like, about AI plus science fiction plus game theory, which are all things that all of you have interest in, but each of you has, like, a real expertise in, in some of that. And you know, my dumb ass just asked, called, like, interject cold war history stuff so thank you all so much thank you to our listeners i really hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we enjoyed putting it together would love to hear your thoughts feedback have you never heard about this movie you're going to watch it now do you think it's ridiculous do you think that this is one of the best romance movies in in the 80s because i do i think the romance of this movie is fantastic not connected to this episode but that's my thought rob's giving me a very skeptical look so again we'll discuss that another time a low bar okay, yes again i i just you know six-year-old me but anyway so thank you all so much uh have a uh so thank you all so much for tuning in please send us your feedback and your thoughts theethicalpanda.com and most importantly as fans be good to each other <laughs> <laughs>